You're listening to The Maniculum, pointing the finger at the Middle Ages. We bring you the choicest medieval nonsense, discuss and evaluate it, then pillage it for our own geeky purposes. Okay, so, hello listeners! I am Zoe, a professional game designer, and I'm here with my co-host, Mac, a PhD at Purdue, and we are weird medievalists who teach you how to adapt weird medieval stories into TTRPGs. Let me clarify that as PhD candidate, I do not actually hold it. You're so close. Yes. You're so close. Theoretically. You're basically there. Anyway, anyway. Today we are doing something very unique and new. This is our New Year special. I guess this oh, this is our first podcast of the new year. It is. Exciting. Happy 2023, everyone. I hope it's a good year for all of us. Inshallah and all that. So today we're going to be doing our tournament episode. This is a long-awaited episode for us once we've reached 25 texts. Is that right? Yes, 25. Yes, we, so we finally reached 25 texts, and we needed something to do with all of the people we've been collecting in our respective fae courts. So we will be doing that today. But before that, uh, I did want to mention a few things. Uh, we were gifted a very cool OSR TGRPG module called The Honest and Plain Village of Skio. You can find it on drivethroughrpg.com. This was gifted to us by a listener. It's very, very cool. Highly recommend checking it out. It's got fantastic illustrations, beautiful maps, like pulled from and then edited, but pulled from like old, looks like 1800s, maybe a little earlier, texts and wood prints and things like that. Very, very fun. Very in-depth, complete module. Sort of a spooky 1700s feel is what I got off of it. But anyway, do check that out. Very cool. Thank you, George, for gifting that to us. And also wanted to shout out our fantastic and growing Discord community. So if you are interested in joining and you have not yet, please check out our show notes down below. We have all of our links down there. And if you want to help support the show, you can do that by becoming a patron on Patreon. That link is also in the show notes. We also have some cool links to our other social media, our Instagram, Twitter, if that's still a thing in the new year. It's slowly dying. Who knows? Yeah. Tumblr. We'll see. We have a Tumblr now. Tumblr. We do have a Tumblr now. I was planning to surprise Zoe with that, but apparently Tumblr sends a lot of emails and I used our shared account to sign up, so <laughs> that didn't work out at yes, all. Yes, our maniculum account. Ah, well. But it's very cool. You should definitely check it out. Uh, we do a lot of posting on there. Uh, but anyway, all of that is available and out, and we have a lot of new Patreon rewards for the new year with bonus episodes and exclusive TTRPG content. So do check that out. We have sort of revamped it a little bit. But anyway, with all of that said, let's jump into our first episode of the year and dive into our tournament. So, Mac, this was your idea. So please introduce us. Okay. Uh, well, okay, I didn't mean it in an accusatory manner. <laughs> but like a, an intrigued, I'm intrigued and curious. All right, so I will explain the the idea here. So when we started, I wanted to do something similar to what Saga Thing does with Thingmen and like collect characters. But we 
didn't actually have a plan for what to do with them. So a while back, I sorted something out. So every 25 like people we collect, and we should have done this a while ago, but we kept putting it off because we now have like 30-some, but we're only talking about the first 25. Yep. Everyone after Fafnir is ineligible. Unfortunately. But we're going to take those 25 characters that we've each collected, and we've asked the Discord to give us ideas for quests on which to send them. So what we're going to do is we've each picked three quests, so six total, and each of us will send up to four characters on each of those six quests, so 24 in total, although I don't think either of us picked the maximum for all of them, so it's fewer than that. Definitely not. But six quests, maximum of four characters each, and we're going to explain which characters in our courts we feel are the best equipped for this quest, and what strategy they will use, and why they are useful. And then we will ask you, the listeners, to vote on which of us did the best. Or on, on each quest, not total. But who wins that quest, yes. essentially? And you can use whatever criteria you want for that. You can just pick whoever you think has put together a party that would be the most successful, or whichever strategy just appeals to you, or whatever. There's no official ranking category here. This is whatever you please, listeners. Yes. And I expect we'll put up a poll or something on the website if we can figure out how to do that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. We can't do it through Discord because not everyone is on Discord, and same with Twitter and Facebook, so we're we'll, just gonna... We'll collect things. Future Mac here. I've figured out how to set up polls on a Wix website, so if you go to our website, which is maniculum.com, or just Google Maniculum, I think we're the first result because it's a fairly uncommon word. And click on the blog header, you will find a blog post that has the requisite polls. We'll also post links on Facebook, Twitter, and in the Discord. What was I saying? Oh yes, so we'll, we'll poll y'all to say mm-hmm. who did the best on each quest, yep. and we will use that to determine who has won the tournament. For this segment, for this section. And in addition to that, we're going to start out by giving a description of these fictional fey courts that we've created, like a basic kind of setting and vibe and what characters we have there in case you've forgotten. Oh yeah, that's a good idea. Go through that list. And we will use that as a tiebreaker because we will also invite you to vote on those. So just in case we end up split three quests to three quests, we we have a tiebreaker option. And we will also be doing some Q&A in between the quests themselves. We have nine questions that we got from the Discord when we asked them for Q&A stuff. So we'll space that out a bit, I guess. I think that covers it. I didn't write that up ahead of time, so I rambled a lot, but... That is okay. Tis the season for improv. Anyway, okay. So we should start with the descriptions and a review of the characters. Oh boy, okay. Should I start with the court? With mine first. Go ahead. Oh, gosh. Okay. So I took inspiration from a couple places in my travels and sort of just the vibe and aesthetic that I really like. So 
The court itself is situated inside a small Norman-style ring fort. Um, if you've seen any of them like left over in Ireland, they're very cool. They're very fun. I like them. This fort is on a forested skellig or like a little forested rocky island. And it is home to a variety of almost normal looking creatures, most of which appear in the corner of your eye. And you're not quite sure, like, it looks like a normal hair, but is it? There's something just a little bit off about it. The ring fort itself has high wooden crossbeams across the ceiling. And this, obviously, this is not accurate to an actual Norman ring fort, but this is the vibe I'm going for anyway. So it has high wooden cross beams and a big, like, central ring fireplace, which comes up, and beautiful tapestries of all the stories that we've read between the arched stained glass windows. The tables within are all long curves of living wood, which has grown up through the stone floor, and they're, like, all curved around the big central fireplace in the middle. And they are facing a high dais where I, as the queen in this court would sit. I presumed we were the king and queen of our own courts. Sure, yeah. So, so I'm going with it. I was mostly reacting to your voice. <laughs> Fair enough. Anyway, yes, there is a big dirt, and I would sit there in a comfy, loungy, high-backed and cushioned throne that looks like the golden bows of a tree, and instead of leaves, there's just gemstones coming off of it in the shapes of leaves. And then swords and weapons would decorate the walls as well, like across from the tapestries. And fairies and cats and ravens and eagles would all sit along the big high crossbeams in the top. And that is what the central court would look like. All right. <laughs> all right. I did a similar thing. I picked a vibe from a place I've been and just kind of expanded on it. The best way. So imagine a scene much like the marshes of the Carolina Low Country. A salt marsh where the water winds lazily through the Spartina cord grass and islands where live oaks hang heavy with Spanish moss. The pluff mud crawls with crabs and periwinkles. Herons and egrets wade through the shallows. Otters and terrapins swim above vast oyster beds. You've got otters. Of course I've got otters. A demi-plane of the realm of fairy, existing in a constant state of summer. This is the court of cicadas, so-called because of the unending cicada song. Biting insects are banned, though. Fairy magic. I know marshes are a little more goblin than fairy, but so am I, so whatever. <laughs> Roll with it. Roll into it. Yeah. At the center of the marsh stands the Tower of the Cicada Monarch, which, yes, is me, surrounded by simple but comfortable dwellings raised on stilts so as to be safe from the tide. These buildings are inhabited by the people who have been collected here from the mortal world and sustained eternally on fairy food. Or, like, fishing, if they feel like doing it. Nice. And yes, the fauna is also a little bit weird. I have an idea for a griffin-like creature that's made of marsh animals. And I might put that yes. together for a, a blog entry. Maybe do some maps, too. Hell yes. But that's my description. And we should also uh, remind people of the characters we have. So I will hand it back to you. So... Our first text is the Tournament of Tottenham. Mac has Tib the Deer, and I have Perkin the Potter. The next text is the Death of McErica. Mac has Dobderin, and I have the Bishop Kernek. Our next text is the Gesta Romanorum, Part 1. Mac took Julian's Nameless Wife, 
And I took a certain emperor. That's what the text says. We're not being, like, coy about which emperor. It's just, yeah, that's just his name. Uh, our next one is The True Judgment of Neil Frasak. You picked the lady lesbian, while I picked the king Frasak himself. Looking at that, I feel like lady lesbian might be redundant. So I don't think she's actually a noblewoman. She is in your court. Fair. Alright, our next one is The Great Tang Records. You picked King Goldenflower, while well, I picked the Starfish King. After this, we have Macdotho's Pig. You picked Albie, the good boy. And I picked Connell. He had the head in his wallet, if you remember. Ah, oh, that guy, yeah. Yeah. Then we have the Gesta Romanorum Part 2. You picked Pompey, I picked Julius Caesar. After that, we have the Toyn Bakuling Part 1. You picked Fedelm, the bug-eyed sorceress, and I picked Kakolan. I would like to clarify that by bug-eyed, we mean insect eyes, not like they're popping out of her head like a pug dog. Yes. <laughs> oh, they freak me out. I feel so bad for pugs. I do too, but I do, I do admit they're cute. Oh, they freak me out. Okay, after this, we have the Seven Sleepers. You picked Theodosius II, and I picked Malchus. Malchus is the bread boy. He's yes. the one who went down for the bread. Uh, after this, we have the Saga of Eric the Red. You picked Thorbjörg... Little Vulva. Vulva, in this case, is a prophetess. She was the prophetess from Greenland. That's right, yes. And then I picked Thorfinn Karlsefni. Then we had Bisclaver and Tiedel. You <laughs> you picked... Uh, I'm gonna let you say that one. Sherlock or Holmesen. This was the like detective knight who discovered that Tiedel was actually Tiedel and not just a polar bear. Yes. And I picked Tiedel the polar bear. He was not called Sherlocker in the original. We named him. <laughs> we did name him. Then we have the Toyn Part 2. You picked Kulin's dog. Not to be confused with Kukulin, who is also called Kulin's dog. Yes. The actual literal dog. The dog, the one that died. And I picked Fergus McRoy. Then we have the Gesta Romanorum Part 3. You picked Valerius Maximus, and I picked the Artificer. Then back to the Toyn for Part 3. You picked Loch, and I picked Leg. After this, we have the second Shepherd's Play. You picked Mac, and I picked Gil, Mac's wife. Yeah, Mac is the sheep thief, if anyone's trying to remember. After this, we have the Embassy to Constantinople. You picked the Child Emperor Basil II. And I picked Michael the Swindler, who, like, was he a swindler? Our dear envoy thought he was. Luprand is an unreliable narrator. Yeah. After this, we have the Wonders of the East. You picked the Donestra, and I picked the Leopard Woman. Then we are back to the Toyn, part four. You picked Feridiad, and I picked Conquivir. Then to the Tang Dynasty Part 2, you picked the <laughs> you picked a reincarnated Panini Kid. This is a reference to the mathematician. Linguist. Linguist, that's right, thank you. The text didn't give him a name, but mentioned that he was a reincarnation of Panini. So, yeah, reincarnated Panini Kid. And I picked Gopala the Dragon. We skip a few texts because they didn't really have anybody in the courts to use. So we go to Perilous Vows, the first part. You picked Lancelot, I picked Gawain. Then we go to the debate of the carpenter's tools. You picked the crowbar, I picked the nail puller. I like that we both used these in our quests. I'm very yeah. interested to see how this comes up. Yeah, I saw you, you were bolding the ones you used, and I was like, oh good, she did figure out how to use the nail puller. 
<laughs> yes. We're back to Perilous Vows for the next few. Uh, you have Josias, Emily. Who is Emily? Was she one of the younger, the younger ladies? Emily is the elder of the two maidens of the tent. That's right. That's where the name comes from, because I was abbreviating her as E.M. Elder Maiden. Right. So, Emily. So, Josias, Emily, and Yglis. And I have Dendrine, Melio of Logris, and Groucha, a.k.a. the Maiden of the Cart. And finally, we had the Lay of Fafnir. You picked Sigurd, and I picked Fafnir. Yes. So, with that said, should we start with a question and then jump into the quests? Yes, let's start with the question, since we have more of those than quests. Oh, but the first question is one that I'm not going to be able to answer well, but I will get, I'll do with it what I can. Go for it. Alright, so the first question on the list is from Altchester on the Discord. What sources would you recommend people for learning about medieval history who do not have the ability to get a degree in it? Shall I start? Please do, because I have, I, I'm having trouble coming up with something for this. I thought about it beforehand and kept coming up blank. Ah, I came up with a few things. So, the first thing that I would recommend is JSTOR. You can log in, create a free account, and you get 100 free articles a month. Which, like, if you can go through 100 academic articles in a month, I applaud you, because I don't think I even did this during my dissertation process. Of course, JSTOR. Why didn't I think of JSTOR? <laughs> it's like the first thing we go to. I know. Unfortunately, you will not be able to access all of the articles because some are still stuck behind paywalls and you have to have, like, you have to be a student at a university and then different universities have different access to different articles. It's it's a f***ing mess. Does 12-foot ladder work on JSTOR? What is that? It's a website that helps get over paywalls. Oh, I don't know. I'm going to write that one down. If you heard that from me, no, you didn't. Yeah. So don't use that. Don't use that. No. Service. JSTOR. Great, great resource there. Also, Teams. Teams is a great resource. I'm forgetting the frickin' acronym. Uh, it's the... Oh, man, I can't remember either. Let me anyway, Mac will get it. You have to be a little able to read Middle English. Like, they gloss mm -hmm. and footnote pretty extensively, so you can, like, work your way through it. But they don't actually translate it. It's just footnotes and glosses and stuff. Yeah. But if you're, if you're looking for primary sources, Teams is a great place to, to look for them. They have a lot of Middle English, Arthurian stuff. There's a, there's a bunch there. And it stands for Teaching Association for Medieval Studies, which I always forget because I get stuck on, what does the E stand for? And it yeah. doesn't stand for anything. The T and the E both stand for teaching. Teaching. Yeah. So JSTOR and Teams, recommend them. I also recommend the Fordham University's Internet Medieval Sourcebook. This is also a great place to look for primary sources. They have a bunch of different source books. It's not just medieval stuff. You can look at like 21st century history, Japanese history. It's like they've got a whole bunch of stuff for free. Definitely check that out. I would also recommend Project Gutenberg. It's a free online library. It's fantastic. You can search for anything. Also archive.org, similar reason. Yes. I would also recommend medievalist.net. You have to be careful with some of the stuff on there in terms of, you know, factual accuracy. But largely, it's a good faith project where people just really like medieval studies. So you can usually find something there for whatever you're looking for. 
other things that I like Googled and can recommend, there's a bunch of like free course sites, some of which you have to pay for, or like some courses you have to pay for, but some are super free, including Coursera, edx.org, which I had never heard of before, but apparently there's a lot of free online courses there. Khan Academy, MOOC, M-O-O-C.org. And then there's the, there's free library, thefreelibrary.com. And then there's also DOAJ, D-O-A-J.org. And that stands for nothing, apparently, but it's open access journals and articles. Department of Animal Justice. I, who knows? Department? Where's the O? Oh, I guess, yeah, of, uh, yeah, I guess that technically works. Anyway, I would recommend checking those out. You might not find what you're looking for, but try them. Who knows? And then the other great place where you can learn history is streamers and creators, like Ludo History, who we just had on in December. He's extraordinarily factually accurate and careful with that stuff. There's also Saga Thing. Simon Roper does YouTube videos on Old English and Middle English. He's sort of a a linguist that's sort of his thing. He sort of blew up and went viral for a short period of time by doing an interview with a like Anglo-Saxon or basically like speaking to someone in Old English and having it subtitled as though it were like a documentary. That was really cool and it got me hooked on a bunch of his videos. So definitely check him out. That's what I listed. So just to go over that again really quick, we've got JSTOR, Teams, Fordham University's Internet Medieval Sourcebook, Project Gutenberg, Medievalist.net, Archive.org, free course sites including Coursera, edx.org, Khan Academy, mooc.org, doaj, d-o-a-j, and the free library, and then also streamers and creators. See, I was stymied on this one because I think I'm maybe I'm, I'm my brain is very old-fashioned. I was just trying to think of book recommendations. <laughs> that that also works. I wanted to find stuff that could like get people going that wasn't behind a paywall. So I, I tried to find only free things. Uh, I do recommend, like if you're just getting into medievalism, I don't know, medieval yeah. studies. That's the term. Technical term. Yeah. Go ahead and like get popular history books, whichever ones strike your fancy that are about the medieval period. Some of them are pretty good. I'm currently reading Barbara Tuckman's A Distant Mirror, which is about the 14th century, and it's very interesting. But the important thing is that you can then use them for a jumping off point. Like, you can make notes of things they talk about that you find interesting, and you can look at their bibliographies, which if they're at all responsible, they'll provide. And then you can read the things in their bibliographies, or take the interesting things they mentioned and look them up on, for example, JSTOR. Once you get an in, then you can kind of figure it out from there. Yes, absolutely. Which is very helpful. Yeah, like the the resources that I listed are like sort of once you have a topic, but also like if you go into JSTOR and just like type in witchcraft or like medieval witchcraft, you're going to find a lot of stuff. True. So, yeah. I mean, you can also do the same thing with Wikipedia. It does provide sources. True. I should have said Wikipedia. That's a great source. I mean, I don't want to encourage, like, do your research on Wikipedia, but like I tell my students, you can use Wikipedia as a starting point to find better sources and more detailed information. Yeah, it's a great first source, to be honest, to, to like, find other things that you're interested in and what they source, and then you just get deeper and deeper. Yeah. Okay. Shall we, shall we go on to our first quest? Sure. Would you like to read the quest, or should I? 
Either way. I guess you read the first one, I'll read the next one. Alright. Do we just want to go in order down the list of the ones we picked? Yes. Okay, so the first... Well, that's that's kismet there. This first one is also from Altchester on the Discord. By the way, uh, if we didn't pick yours, I'm sorry, we got a bunch that we wanted to pick, and we, we just didn't have time or people for more than six. For all of them, yeah. There were a couple I really liked. One in the Discord about holy relics, and one that came over email that was like a Frankenstein's monster scenario. That was so cool. I, I couldn't think of a good approach for them, and then we ran out of things to pick. But anyway. Quests. Yep. Yeah, we got a whole bunch. Thank you. And I think we should put those up on the blog and, and credit everybody or something. We'll have to do something with them because they're super cool ideas. Yeah. All right. But anyway. Anyway. This first quest from Altchester. A local leech needs some fool's gold to mix into a potion to heal the mayor's wife. However, the only known fool's gold is a couple mountains over. The road through the mountains is known to hold host to a strange cult of a foreign god who try to distract with fresh bread and aged wine. The fool's gold itself is protected by a cranky wizard who will only relinquish it if bested in a riddle competition. Alright, since I okay. read the quest, do you want to do your... I'll go first, I guess. Okay. So the way that I like put this together, because I wasn't sure how we were going to do this, is I, I picked people and said why I picked them, and then I picked like how they would approach it. So I picked Fafnir, Groucha, and Connell. I picked Fafnir first because he's a dragon, and I will guarantee you that he knows real gold from fool's gold, so in this case he'll actually be able to identify the fool's gold as fool's gold. And I also picked him because dragons are good at riddles, and he'll obviously be able to beat the wizard in his riddle competition. He's the most competent person to do that in my court. I picked Groucha because she's used to hard travel and carrying a cart with, with her, and so she can carry the fool's gold back. Also, she takes shit from no one, so she's not likely to be influenced by the cult. And she's also like deeply religious herself because she's part of the Fisher King's court, and therefore she like she's not gonna have time for, for their religious nonsense at all. And finally, I picked Connell because he is a hero and a challenger, and he carries heads in his wallet, so he's not likely going to be swayed by convincing. To be fair, the one major flaw in my plan here is that he does love a good feast. That is where we see him in uh, Macdetho's Pig. But there is no meat described here for these cultists, so I don't think he's going to be, like, swayed by their offerings of wine and bread because there's not like a hero's portion to have and uh oh yeah he's also the backup plan for if fafnir doesn't solve the riddle <laughs> just in case <laughs> okay so fafnir groucha and connell set off on their journey to the mountains they are aware of this strange cult but they are determined to stay focused on their mission and as they travel through the mountains they are approached by members of this cult in their strange ways and they are offered bread and wine they try to politely decline and, and travel on and groucha and fafnir of course pass this quest very easily but Connell is sort of swayed by the idea of, of a feast in the first place. However, once he realizes that there is no meat, he flips a table and they are chased out of whatever cultish gathering place this was. Groucha uses her clerical powers to keep everyone safe because she's religious. I decided she was a, uh, a cleric rather than a paladin because she doesn't really use force in the text. Anyway, 
They eventually reach the mountain where the fool's gold is located and are confronted by the cranky wizard, Tim, who guards it. The wizard challenges them to a riddle competition. And if they win, they'll get the gold. And there's some squabbling over this, like why a wizard would even be guarding fool's gold in, in the first place, because it's not real gold and Fafnir doesn't really seem all that impressed. But a riddle is a riddle, and so he decides he'll do it. Now, Fafnir, being a dragon, and therefore being good at riddles, steps up to the challenge and begins solving them fairly easily. Groucha and Connell stand by, ready to assist if needed. Connell would rather steal the gold and run off with it, or slay the wizard, but Groucha, you know, gets him not to and prepares her card. Now, Fafnir successfully solves all the wizard's riddles, impressing him indeed, and they earn the gold. Now, Groucha, being the maiden of the cart, and is who's used to carrying both heads and gold, loads up the gold, or the, the fool's gold, rather, and excellently steers it down the mountain, and Connell and Fafnir have a fun time chasing off the cultists who don't want to have anything to do with them, given that Connell had already previously flipped some tables and smashed up their, you know, religious wine experience. With the fool's gold in hand, Fafnir, Groucha, and Connell return to the local leech who mixes it into the potion to heal the mayor's wife. The quest is complete and the trio are hailed as heroes. And that is how I approach this quest. <laughs> wow, you actually wrote out like a narrative. I did not- I did! That's a good idea. I, I should have done you that. You didn't line up anything of, of how we're doing this, so I'm like, well, I guess I'm writing the quest. <laughs> yeah, well, I tried to keep it open-ended. Yeah, that's a good idea. I should have done the same. I, I just kind of laid out a strategy, and then I was like, well, they'll, they'll find out if it works uh, based on, I don't know, whatever the, the non-existent GM says. Yes. See, I, I wasn't sure because I, I felt like Connell could have failed a roll there or something, but I did have a backup plan for that, so I wasn't sure because we're not at a table. So I went with the narrative approach. Fair, fair. Entirely makes sense. <laughs> anyway. All right, so here's mine, which... As you may have guessed, does not include a nice narrative. I'm sorry. I I, I hope it's still passable. <laughs> so, we have three challenges within this quest. First, we have to journey through the mountains. Second, we have to deal with some kind of transubstantiation cult. And third, yes. we have to answer the wizard's riddles. The hermit Joseus has experience with wilderness survival and is also capable in a fight if it comes to that. So he will come along to ensure the journey is safe. He will assist in setting up camp, managing supplies, and protecting the party from wild beasts. Likewise, his theological knowledge will be used to confront the cult. They sound like they're at least kind of Christian-y, I'm assuming from the bread and the wine. So he should either be able to find common ground with them and arrange safe passage, or should that fail, beat the crap out of them for being heretics. <laughs> 10 out of 10. Love it. The knight from Tiadel Saga, whom we dubbed Sherlocker Holmesen, is also capable in a fight, we have to assume so, since he is a knight and all, so he can support Joseus in that arena. He should also be able to plan ahead for contingencies and make sure the party is prepared for any eventualities. Most importantly, though, he can answer the riddles. In Tiadel Saga, he demonstrated that he is able to make accurate deductions from limited information, so we imagine he's quite good at riddles. That's very good, yes. Finally, we will bring the crowbar from the debate of the carpenter's tools. Since it's non-organic, it won't be a strain on survival resources. It can assist Joseus in debating with the cult, which might have the effect of awing them into compliance, being a talking crowbar. It may also be able to bond with the cultists over a love of alcoholic beverages. Mm. A magical crowbar might turn out to be very helpful in retrieving the fool's gold, since the quest doesn't specify whether it's already extracted from the mountains. 
will bring along the appropriate tools for that sort of thing in case it's necessary, and the crowbar can supervise the effort. Very nice. That's my whole thing. A good approach. I like it. Thank you. All right. I guess we'll leave that to the to the listeners. Yes, and we should do another question. It's your turn to read it. All right. What is both of your favorite books of all time? I've put a lot of thought into this because this is not the first time I've been asked this, and I always come up with a different answer based on how I'm feeling. Every time. Like, how could you ask me this? I have so many. No offense. It's a perfectly good question, but it, it is hard to answer. Yes, it's a very hard, hard question to answer. It's a fantastic question. The one that I think I could accurately describe as my favorite individual book is Terry Pratchett's Small Gods. I recommend all of Terry Pratchett's work to anybody who likes books, basically. I can't imagine anyone not enjoying <laughs> it. But Small Gods is, I think, one of the more interesting ones. It's got a lot of good world building and interesting, like, narrative choices. And it's also a standalone book, so you don't have to read the uh, anything else in the series if you don't want to. Although you should. Very nice. Very nice. Mine? Okay. <sighs> I couldn't pick one. So, I was really torn. I think, I, okay, so the runner-up, technically the honorable mention, is Cicero's On Obligations. Uh, <laughs> I knew it! I knew you were gonna give me some sh Nerd! I know! Look, I grew up with these books. Ugh. I read Aristotle too early. Any okay, anyway. I grew up with a very weird classical education, but... Cicero's On Obligations has a lot of really, really good life lessons. It was originally a letter sent to his son that was meant to be, like, passed around his son's little reading circle about, like, how to advance in life. And it, for me, it balances a lot of the questions about, like, okay, people say be yourself and don't care what others think of you. But people also say, like, you gotta, you gotta think about how to act in the workplace and, like, your, your behavior affects others and, like, how do you reconcile that and blah 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 and i think cicero actually does a really good job of like balancing that in a very temperate sort of way and it's also just kind of fun that he's doing that centuries ago and it still applies i find it to be a very enlightening read it's not super long but anyway technically my favorite book is brisinger in the inheritance cycle <laughs> which i'm probably gonna get a lot of for um because it's, like, Aragon, if you read it, like, it's very clearly written by a teenager, but that series is what got me into fantasy, and I think Brissinger is, is his, like, pinnacle in the series, and it's what got me really thinking about world building and fantasy and how I would want to do it. It's the book that got me, like, back into, well, I guess into, in the first place, Tolkien and understanding how secondary world creation actually works. And it's the series in the book that really, like, made me fall in love with fantasy. So, yeah, Aragon and technically Brissinger is my favorite book of all time. Even though it's a little bit cringy. I can't comment. <laughs> I haven't read it. It's- I really enjoyed it. I really enjoyed it because it's the first time that I could see the threads of history in somebody else's work. And it wasn't, like, a, a f***ing Jesus lion. Mm-hmm. So it, for me, it was the book that opened my eyes to, to what fantasy and world building could be. And like, really, that's that's why I'm into medieval studies in the first place. So eh, take that for what you will, listeners. Fair but enough. that one's my favorite. <laughs> All right, back up to our next quest. 
I guess I'm reading this one first, huh? Yes. Okay. So this one is from, forgive me if I say this wrong, Arda Lencore. And this is, here we go. The new Grand Duke has informed your impoverished seaside county that he is reviving a nearly forgotten act of homage. A phoenix egg must be delivered to him before the summer solstice. An outlying cluster of rocky spires and craggy breakwaters, known to local fisherfolk as the Bubbling Rocks, are home to a small colony of the Firebirds. At most times, the islets are barely visible from shore, but during especially intense periods, the steam from the sulfur and whatever else boils beneath paints ill omens at sunset. Will you help your people and comply with this ancient obligation, or face the wrath of the Grand Duke? Since you read, I will say mine first. I've got a All longer right. one for this. Oh, okay. I mean, longer than the last one, not like excessively long. It's just longer than the previous. Anyway. So, there's some uncertainty built into this one. It sounds like the bubbling rocks aren't frequently visited, so who knows what we might find there. And what's the best way to retrieve a phoenix egg? Who knows? Tactically, we're going in blind. This is why the first step will be to consult with Thorbjörg Glitulvorva, the elderly pagan prophetess from the saga of Eric the Red. From her insight, we will determine what we need to do in order to have the best chances of being successful. Also, as a magic user from a seafaring community, she may be able to contribute some advice or spellcraft in order to aid our journey into the bubbling rocks. We know from the sagas that weather control is often part of a Norse witch's toolbox. Very true. Good call. Thank you. At the very least, as a Greenlander, she 100% knows a thing or two about the best way to steal bird eggs from a rock in the ocean. <laughs> yes, she does. So she'll come along, but primarily in an advisory role and for magical support. Going in with metaphorical guns blazing is probably a losing proposition. I don't imagine Phoenices are pushovers, and the quest establishes that there's a colony of them, not just one. So we're recruiting the one rogue I have in my court, Mac from the Second Shepherd's Play. He's an experienced Ooh. sneak thief with some magical ability of his own, so he'll be the one to actually retrieve the egg. Finally, just in case we attract the attention of an angered phoenix, we'll bring Ferdiath from, or Ferdiath, or however you say that, from the Toyn Bakuling. He's one of the best fighters we have. He was able to hold his own against Kukulin for three days. We also That's know true. that he's a very cautious person, which means he's not likely to unnecessarily provoke a fight with one of these firebirds. Also, his fight with Kukulin took place in a ford, so the nature of the battlefield, i.e. partially submerged rocks, shouldn't be a huge issue. So, very nice. In summary, the approach is to use Thorbjorg's prophetic abilities to work out the details. She should be able to identify which days are the most auspicious on which to try this scheme, what kind of pitfalls we should avoid, that sort of thing. Also, as mentioned earlier, her cultural background means she has practical knowledge of the matter she can share. She accompanies the party out into the boat to supervise, calm the weather if she can, and so forth. We'll try and use one of Max's magic circles to put the phoenixes to sleep if it looks like we can draw one around a rock without alerting the birds on that rock. If not, we'll have to rely on his stealth to slip in and steal an egg without being spotted. Bear the ad will wait nearby in case Mac isn't successful in his sneaking, so that if a phoenix is alerted to the party's presence, he can cover Mac's retreat. Very nice. Thank you. Great approach. Funnily enough, I picked a similar approach in terms of, like, I don't want to harm the local environment. So I, I went for a, um, I guess, chaotic good? Well, a, a neutral good party? Anyway, I picked Thorfinn Karlsefni, 
because he's he's just a stand-up guy. Everybody loves this guy. He's also a tank, so if we do end up in combat, he'll be okay. He's also very comfortable with sailing into bad conditions, unknown conditions, and so on. So he's going to be totally fine to navigate out there. He at least knows where we're going and can get us over there. I also picked the Artificer because he's bound to have a concoction or several to get us through the potentially volcanic, sulfurous, dangerous land without any harm. So I would I would want to rely on his expertise there. And then I also picked Leg, who is Kukulin's charioteer, because he's very used to dealing with dangerous cargo, shall we say. And he can hold the egg and take care of it and sneak in and sneak out, because he did a lot of sneaking, uh, actually, in the Toynbuku link. So that's who I picked. So here's how they approach it. And mine, I don't think, is in as quite as much detail, but we'll see. Uh, Thorfinn, the artificer, and Leg, the charioteer, set out on their journey to the bubbling rocks. They know that the islets are home to a colony of phoenixes, but they are also aware of the intense dangers of the environment. The Artificer brings along a few special concoctions that will help them navigate through the steam and the sulfur and the other dangers without any issues. I said there are likely a few checks to ensure these concoctions don't break on the journey, but we're going to trust Thorfinn to navigate us carefully through. As they approach the bubbling rocks, they can see the steam rising from the islets and smell the sulfur in the air. They use their concoctions, and I don't know whatever other little vials and things, to safely navigate through the steam and sulfur to reach the islets, and Thorfinn uses his expert sailing skills to navigate to the right place. I figure this would be a combination of, like, seeing the phoenixes and going probably to the place where it is hottest, because phoenix eggs incinerate, and then, you know, the phoenixes, they're used to the heat, so I figure we go there. <laughs> Once they reach the shore, they may encounter dangers of the land. I wasn't sure what other things would be on these islands. So Thorfinn, because he's one, a stand-up guy, and two, because he's also a beast, might defeat the dangers of the islands or negotiate any other potential threats. We also don't know if there are living creatures over on these islands of other sorts. But, you know, he had a, he had a good time negotiating to start with, with the, the locals. So, I figure he'll do okay. They search for a phoenix egg and eventually find one, and Leg takes care to handle it very gently. With the phoenix egg in hand, they set out for the Great Duke's castle, taking care to avoid any danger along the way. Thank you, Thorfinn. They arrive at the castle just in time for the summer solstice, and present the phoenix egg to the Grand Duke, who is pleased with their efforts. The quest is complete, and they are praised for their bravery and determination. Very good. Thank you. So that's, that's how I approached it. Yes. I like it. All right. I'm going to go a little out of order with the next question because someone asked a question in response to the last question we answered. So I figure we'll go ahead and do that. Oh, yes. Okay. So Lady Antiope asks, favorite book of all time sounds tough. Which it is. How about favorite book you've read in the last year or two? Okay. I listed a couple because apparently I can't follow directions. <laughs> uh <laughs> it's okay. I picked three. Oh, good. Okay, cool. I, I also picked three. So I'm currently reading The Coward by Stefan Aryan, which I'm really, really enjoying. The premise is this 
kid basically followed up a bunch of adventurers to kill an ice lich, and he was the only one who survived. And he comes back with like PTSD, and he's called upon to like do this again. And so he's a hero in the land, but he absolutely does like he didn't do anything. He didn't actually kill this thing. He he just wants out. So it's it's very compelling, and I think it does a fantastic job of depicting PTSD in a in a real way. And the book is actually dedicated to service members. So it makes me think that either the author has some personal experience with this, or at least has researched it very well. I think it's a breath of fresh air, especially when you have characters like Quoth, Quoth, whatever his name is, Kefefe in The Name of the Wind. I can't stand Name of the Wind. I'm so sorry. <laughs> who is just like an edgelord who's like i did so many things and then he tells you about all the amazing things he's done but he's still depressed about it anyway point is that book bothered me but i'm really enjoying like this text's um like variation on that so the coward by stefan arian is fantastic if you're going for fantasy raven boys was probably my favorite one of the year overall it's YA bent, but it's outside of what I normally read, which is epic fantasy, and it's fun and cute, and the phrasing is outside of a lot of epic fantasy tropes, decadence, like, it's more poetic in its verbiage, and I like it, so that was very fun to read. I won't spoil anything there, but if you like Dark Academia, you will like it. And finally, I picked a nonfiction book. Because this is probably this is my favorite nonfiction book of the year, simply for everything that it's taught me. And it is, <laughs> it is, I will teach you to be rich, which despite its f***ing pretentious ass name, is actually a great guide on how to set up your life for like financial freedom, how to set up a 401k, what investments actually are, should you be doing them, and how to actually go about that how to manage your credit card, just things that like, I was never really taught financially. It gives you a great, like basic overall understanding of that stuff. So if you are currently a young professional or a college student or somebody who's like, had to go out and make it on your own, and you don't have a financial basis and understanding, I highly, highly, highly recommend this book, just from a like, get your life together standpoint, because I was always very nervous about like, how does money work? And I managed it fine, but now I'm confident in in where that is. So that's my top recommendation for nonfiction is I will teach you to be rich. This is why Zoe handles the business aspect of this whole thing. Because <laughs> when I read books like this, it, it I just hear static in my head and nothing. It's sticks. yeah. Yeah. And like, this is not like an investing book or anything. This is like, hey, if you're employed, you probably have a 401k. Here's how to set it up. Like, that's this book. <laughs> All right. So, I'll list my books. Uh, I do actually have one standout favorite, but I wanted to do... I read a bunch of good books this year, so I have two honorable mentions. So, my honorable mentions are We Won't Be Here Tomorrow by Margaret Killjoy, which is a collection of science fiction and fantasy short stories. And I heard about it because the author, Margaret Killjoy, also hosts a podcast that I enjoy, and... So I was motivated to go read her book, and it's very good. Also, my second honorable mention is Fight Like Hell, The Untold History of American Labor by Kim Kelly. Ooh, that sounds great. It is. It's a very, very good, very moving book about basically 
labor organization and the aspects of it that aren't covered in the major histories. Because, like, everyone knows about the Battle of Blair Mountain, and if you don't, I recommend Mm -hmm. reading about it. But there's, like, a lot of other stuff in the same vein that doesn't get the same historical attention. Very nice. Which is especially important in this day and age. Yes. And my favorite book, I I recognize that this is a bit basic, but my favorite book I've read this year is Nona the Ninth, and by extension, the whole Locked Tomb series. That starts with Gideon the Ninth, right? It starts with Gideon the Ninth. Oh, I just started that one. I'm glad. I I think you'll enjoy it a lot. Gideon's very snarky. It's very fun. I like the necromancy. I'm not going to give away a lot of the plot here, other than there's a snarky person and there's necromancy. Like... There's a lot of spoilers if I start talking about it, but I will tell you that I read Gideon the Ninth and Harrow the Ninth as audiobooks, so I guess listened to. Whatever. When Nona the Ninth came out, I was like, okay, these are books with very like intricate plotting and world building, and they reward careful reading, and I want to be able to flip back and forth. So when Nona the Ninth came out, I went out and bought all three of them in physical book form and reread the whole series. And then once I finished rereading the whole series, I went back and I did it again, but I annotated. Ooh. Like, just to give you an idea of how, like, obsessive I got with this. And I've also actually been, like, since we got a Tumblr, I've been using Tumblr to follow along with, like, fan theories and stuff, which is not something I ever do. I'm just so obsessed with these books. It's so fun, though. I had to know more about what other people were saying about them. 10 out of 10. Very nice. I may start posting about it on our Tumblr, even you though it should absolutely. It's it's off theme, but uh, apparently engaging with fandoms that aren't particularly part of your topic is acceptable on, as a Tumblr. So I might start doing it. This is true. You this shouldn't read true. anything I post about it because spoilers. <laughs> yes, do do give it a read. Yeah, I'm on the first. I'm on the first one, and it is it's quite fun. All right, scrolling back up to our next quest. Anyway. This one is from King in Green in the Discord. Also, I want to state that this is the first one I picked because I really liked it. The King of the Hundred Knights is presently the King of the 97 Knights due to knights being knights. Your party must pass seven tests modeled upon seven knightly virtues over the seven days of the festivities. The seven virtues prized by the king are floatiness, randiness, glibness, ingenuity, horsemanship, vengefulness, and luckiness. And then they clarify, this is for a party of three who wish to become knights. Alternatively, you can be setting up and running the tests to whittle down the candidates. Okay, so I opted for the um, partaking in the quests rather than setting them up. So I picked Perkin the Potter, Tiedel, and Neil Frosach for mine. So here we go. Perkin the Potter is in charge of glibness, randiness, and horsemanship. And I'll skip why, because, like, why is also in how. Tiadel is clearly in charge of quests for vengefulness and luckiness. And Neil Frosuk, I also picked because he solves intense problems. So he's in charge of the floatiness and the ingenuity. I can already imagine how he relates to floatiness. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. I, I was quite clever with this one, in <laughs> my opinion. So... Perkin the Potter, Tiedel, and Neil Frostick begin their quest to become knights. Neil Frostick takes on the first test, which is the floatiness, the floatiness virtue. The partaking knights are required to demonstrate their ability to become airborne for an extended period of time. Niall wins by way of making all the other competitors fall from their floaty spells with his magic thinking powers. 
So he wins by default because he ended up doing this thing in his story where he has magic thinking powers and like the spirit of wisdom, according to Irish folklore, like came out of his head and was so powerful that there was a priest who was caught by demons of the air and it pierced through the spell and the priest fell back down to earth. So Neil essentially hops up and down and through his powers of magical thinking, forces everybody else to lose their spells of floatiness and wins by default. Also, how you interpret his his anti-floatiness ability in canon may involve him blushing and steam coming out of his ears. Yes, yes, this is this also, yes. So this is quite a, a ridiculous sort of um, image, but he wins. Next, Perkin the Potter takes on the test of randiness where candidates must demonstrate their stamina and ability to outlast their opponents. Now, Perkin is well-versed in the ways of tournaments and randiness because he has already competed in the Tournament of Tottenham and is confident in his ability to win this test, mainly by getting drunk and brawling. Now, this is the same technique that he used in the Tournament of Tottenham, and it proved quite, quite effective then, so I think it will, you know, come through again in this one. Next is Tiedel. Tiedel is in charge of the test for vengefulness, where the candidates must demonstrate their ability to seek and enact revenge against their enemies. Tiedel, who is a were-polar bear, and has already bitten off his wife's nose, and her, her husband's nose, he's got a proven track record of vengefulness, so he turns into a werebear and says he'll enact revenge on anyone who, who comes against him and sort of wins that one by default as well. Now we are back to Neil Frossa, who is tasked with the test of ingenuity, where candidates must demonstrate the ability to think creatively and solve seemingly impossible problems. Now, Neil has this invulnerability because he is the King of Ireland and has his magic thinking powers, so uh, it doesn't really take much here. What are the magic thinking powers called again? Isn't there a name for them? There's a name for them. But I can't, I can't think of it at the moment. I want to say something like Fear Flatha. It is, thank you. It is Fear Flatha. So he uses his Fear Flatha, his, his King Wisdom, and gets quite embarrassed, and his face goes all red, and he steams out of his ears. And this probably causes another slightly magical event to happen at the same time during this tournament, but because he has a magical advantage, which is not against the rules, he wins this one as well. Perkin the Potter takes on the test of horsemanship, where the candidates must demonstrate their ability to ride and control horses. Now, Perkin also has a history of stealing and minding horses, because he does this in the Tournament of Tottenham, and that is how he wins the tournament, because he steals everybody else's horses and then gives them to Tib. So he steals everybody else's horses and presents them to the king. So we're very confident in his ability to, to win this test as well. Also, he's probably still drunk at this point. Tiedel is also responsible for the test of luckiness, and this, again, Tiedel, like, he already has his share of luck in the past. He did go from being an ousted knight to the king of Syria, after all, and he's also a werebear, so I think he'll probably manage this one just fine. He seems to, to have a track record for that one. And then finally is the test of glibness, where candidates must demonstrate their ability to speak eloquently, which I'm not quite sure if glib... Glib is not quite eloquently, but anyway. Birkin takes on this one, and 
he's already proven that he has glibness, especially when drunk already, because he said that he's gonna, you know, he's only gonna offer 40 pence for Tib in the first place. So he takes on this one. And Niall Frostick also takes part and advises in this one, but he has a very different tactic. So he's sort of the backup guy in his King Wisdom stuff. But Perkin, I think, because he's still drunk, he's already stolen the horses, he's pretty confident in his abilities. All he needs to do now is sweet talk and insult everybody else, and he'll be fine. So those are my champions that I have put forward for for this tournament. All right. Very nice. <laughs> Thank you. I tried. All right. So... I didn't know what the tests were going to entail and didn't come up with them. I just decided that my approach would be to find someone who has the appropriate virtues and assume the tests would be well-designed once we arrived at Canaan House. I mean, at the festivities. <laughs> I nominate the woman we named Emily, the elder of the two maidens of the tent from Perlisfaus. She exemplifies floatiness because her upbringing as a noblewoman should allow her to gracefully float across the dancing floor and speak to courtiers in airy tones and highborn manner. She exemplifies randiness because of her persistent attempts to sleep with Gowan. She exemplifies glibness because she is able to, apparently successfully, accomplish her goals by relying on talking passing knights into doing her bidding. The fact that she employs flirtatious language and presentation in order to do this reinforces the previous point. She exemplifies ingenuity for much the same reason. She takes no direct action, but demonstrates an ability to impose her will on the world through the manipulation of the chivalric system. Horsemanship is the weak point here. We can mm. assume she knows how to ride because she has a noble upbringing and apparently spends enough time traveling that she virtually lives in a pavilion. But she never actually demonstrates this in the text, so we don't have direct evidence. That's fair. Oh, you took it as they're all doing the tournaments. Kind of. Oh, okay. All right. She exemplifies vengefulness because her first appearance in the text was arranging the violent murder of her ex-boyfriend. That's right. And her second was arranging to humiliate Gowan for not sleeping with her. Her luckiness is shown because the narrative seems to be working in her favor. When she wants to get rid of her boyfriend, one of the best knights in the world shows up to be talked into doing it. Later, that knight crosses her path again at a tournament, and she just so happens to have heard that this knight has an outstanding vow she can use to make him publicly humiliate himself. The only thing that doesn't go her way is that she does not, in fact, get lucky. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's fair. Admittedly, she has no known fighting capabilities, but the text does not actually indicate that as a necessity. These are festivities, mm -hmm. not a tournament, and martial prowess is not one of the virtues listed. Now... Emily is so much more qualified for this than any other member of my court that rather than planning to enter three people and hope one of them wins, I'm putting all my eggs in her basket. Oh my gosh. My other pick for this quest will go as support for her. Lancelot will accompany Emily as her cavalier. I mean, tutor. <laughs> all right. Okay. Since horsemanship is the only virtue we're not sure she possesses, he can give her lessons. We know he knows how to ride because he does demonstrate that in the text. He can also instruct her in other basic knightly skills just in case they come up. They may not be the focus of any of the tests, but she'll probably need to at least pass as a knight at a cursory evaluation, so it can only help to get her up to speed. And that's Very my nice. strategy. I like it. 10 out of 10. I like it. You picked one. That's bold. You're going to have to tell me who suggested this one, because I have my doc up. If you had to choose, what is your overall favorite D&D setting, species, class, and subclass combination? This is from Hand Over Fire on the Discord. All right. 
Okay, so I actually have very little knowledge of D&D settings because I have only once played in a D&D game where the setting was something that was published rather than something that was homebrewed. Same. Yep. That's going to be my problem as well. <laughs> yeah. And, and that was because he, the GM was doing it for the first time. And so he got, I think it was a Forgotten Realms module and just ran it. However, I am very much intrigued by the Planescape and Spelljammer settings. I've just never been sufficiently motivated to get the setting books and read them. But what I hear about them sounds very interesting. Species, Goblin, with Kobold a close second. I just like horrible, grubby little guys. <laughs> I don't have anything to add, add on that. That's just true. And I can't say much about species and class combination because I usually pick class based on like, like I get a character in my head and then I pick the class that fits the best. Yep. yep. But I do think druids are really cool. So I, I like their whole nature vibe. I've only once actually played a goblin druid. That was actually in the most recent campaign I played in. I played a goblin ranger druid multi-class because we were starting at fifth level because the gm thought the first few levels were boring which i disagree on but whatever i like low level campaigns i agree i think you should always They're start fun. at first level but anyway he was based on a combination of a bit of marginalia in the rutland psalter that showed a little goblin-like creature riding a giant bird oh that guy he was originally just going to be a druid i gave him the ranger levels so he could have a giant bird I love it. And he was also inspired by Clamadas of the Shadows. Clamadas. 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 <laughs> the way it, that was inspired was his backstory was that his goblin village had been the victims of like the great heroes of the realm on one of their early adventures out fighting goblins. Hell yes. And now that they'd ascended to like herodom and he'd grown up. He decided that he was going to go out and be a better hero just to stick it to them and kill any of them if he happened to see them. Yes, I'm here for it. Uh, and I don't know what a subclass is. I think that might be a fifth edition thing. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so for mine, like Mac, I don't actually have too much experience in D&D settings. Blah. I don't think, I think everything I've ever played has been a variation of a, like a, like a homebrew. So I don't think I've actually ever done a D&D setting before. My partner wants to run Kingmaker, but that's Pathfinder. So yeah, I've never actually done a D&D setting. I've heard Kingmaker's very good. Yeah. Personally, I don't like campaigns that like shift planes. I really like the low level, like political intrigue, what's going on in our world sort of thing. Once you get to like super high level and you're fighting gods, I'm like, ah, I'm bored, I'm out. Which you could consider a flaw in, in my nature. <laughs> I don't know. Like, once you get to, like, Superman level and you can destroy pretty much anything, I'm like, ah, okay. I do feel like it's a lot more fun when everything is a challenge. Yeah, you know, it's it's more intriguing to me when you have things to overcome. But I also tend to like the first third of a movie better than the last third of, of a movie or a story or whatever. So take that as you will. As for species, class, subclass combinations... I've listed off my two favorites, really, that I've done. The first was a red-headed dwarf champion fighter. So subclass is champion and class is fighter, race is dwarf, with a double-bladed axe that she called the double header. And her little thing was that she put a notch in her axe, like on the on the wood of it, 
every time she decapitated someone, and that was her head count. Nice. So that was her thing. The other thing that I did that was just bad insane, but it's still my favorite thing, and I'm so sad I didn't get to play this for that long, was an elven Order of the Lycan, that's the subclass, Blood Hunter. But instead of being a werewolf, she was a were-velociraptor. (laughs) 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 Due to an enchantment gone wrong. Because the setting here was that it it was like um it was a pre-modern, like early guns, like post-medieval early modern setting where this like gosh, it was basically like think very early colonial America if America were covered in dinosaurs. Interesting. It was like really cool. And so like the the science people, the science um you know the the British Royal Science Club that they had? Yeah, I can't remember what they're called either, but I know who you Yeah. But anyway, she was a member of... But she was the equivalent, uh, a member of the equivalent in whatever D&D setting we were using. And so she wanted to, like, weaponize that and use that technology. But the enchantment went wrong. And the cool thing about the order of the lichen is that you can't choose when you transform until third level so for the first two levels i would i would roll to see whether i just would bust out of my victorian corset and into that's a a choice (laughs) phrase there (laughs) yeah i would bust out of my victorian corset into being a velociraptor and so she was one of my favorite characters to play because she's like Magic doesn't exist. I use science. Rah! <laughs> and would just bust out. Yeah, she was f***ed, but she was fun. But as for my classic combination, like if, if we're doing like a, a straight up, just straight D&D character, I like my edgy half-elf Beastmaster Ranger. Thank you very much. I know that it's like the edgy thing to pick. That was my first character in D&D. Classic. So there's my answer. All right. Okay. Read us a quest. All right. We are on to one by TBWOE-6. Or possibly TBWO-6. <laughs> yes. And this one is inspired by the wonders of the East. An incredibly lazy suggestion on my part, but there are a decent number of quest-worthy things to choose from. If we're looking for actual context, perhaps the courts are each charged with escorting the individual through the various locations and either defend them or assist with diplomacy. Uh, I don't know, user's choice, but it could be a neat way to incorporate one of the less peopled texts. If anyone is looking for context, specifically the locations and peoples are the locations and peoples in the Wonders of the East. Yes. All right. It's traveling through this setting. Yes. Oh, I'm, and I read. You're first going now. first. All right. So, so in order to safely escort a dignitary through the various Wonders of the East, we need a few different things. First, some kind of bodyguard for the dignitary in case things go wrong. I nominate Lachmor from, I don't know how to say it exactly, it's L-O-C-H, and apparently his full name is L-O-C-H space M-O-R. I looked him up from the Twain Bakuling. He's a minor character, but he is actually good in a fight. Not only does he manage to hold his own against Kukulin for a while, but he is described as, quote, the royal champion of Munster, unquote, so we assume he has a significant resume. Plus, he's depicted as a cautious person with a strong sense of honor, so he's unlikely to do anything stupid and impulsive, which is something that we have to consider when we're taking armed guards into strange lands. Very true. Second, 
If we're traveling into strange lands, we can't possibly pass up the opportunity to learn more about them. Someone scholarly has to be on the team to make notes and ask the right questions. For this, I nominate the druid Dubdarin. Dubdar- How do you say that? Yeah, Dubdarin, yeah. Who has arguably the closest thing to an academic background in my court. The popular image of druids is like wild men with like horns in their hair out in the woods, but actually, historically, becoming a druid was a process of like a 20 year education. It's more like an Iron Age PhD than anything else, so I figure he's gonna be. Yeah, for real. He might also have some magical knowledge, which can't hurt. As a research assistant, he can employ the young man from the Tang Records, who is the reincarnation of the great linguist Panini. I like it. Panini Kid may have taken monastic vows in preference to pursuing scholarship in this incarnation, but we've got to figure he's still pretty smart. Also, since he and Dabdarin have wholly different cultural backgrounds, he can provide a different perspective and put a check on any of Dabdarin's cultural assumptions, which should make him a very helpful research assistant. Third, we need funding and connections. This expedition is going nowhere without money for supplies, and we need someone who can navigate diplomatic issues. For this purpose, I nominate Theodosius II of the Eastern Roman Empire. As the founder of the University of Constantinople, funding and organizing an expedition of discovery, which, you know, is the secondary but more interesting purpose, is right in his wheelhouse. With his resources, we can properly outfit a caravan and employ hirelings, including local guides and mercenaries, as needed. can also engage with foreign heads of state on equal terms. As for the actual wonders themselves... Theodosius can initiate diplomatic relations with the various settlements and kingdoms we pass through, as well as the Kynocephali, Blemies, Panotii, Homodubii, etc. Mm-hmm. Loch can defend against any attack from the eight-footed beasts, two-headed snakes, man-eating hostess, and dragons. The people who gather pepper from the snakes and the people who gather gold from the ants would probably both be happy to engage in trade negotiations, so Theodosius is useful there again. The people who gather gold from the ants, by the way, as well as the two-headed giants, have connections to India, so it's possible they have languages in common with Paninikit, which would ease communication. It's not by any means guaranteed, because there are a lot of different languages in India, but there's a chance. There you go. I'm hoping that we've got a sensible enough crew to try and talk to the ox-tailed women and whatnot, rather than attacking them like Alexander did, which is my main concern here, is that somehow all of this <laughs> is going to end in violence. So I'm trying to rein that in. That is, that is my plan. <laughs> Very nice. I like it. I like it. You took a very different tack than I did. I assumed this was already funded. My main concern was peace and safety throughout this navigation rather than education and knowledge. So I picked, Lord save me, the Leopard Woman, Gawain, and Malchus. So I picked the Leopard Woman because she's local to the area, and she has an understanding of the dangers. She knows who to interact with. Of course, there is a chance here that she's going to be like, those are our sworn enemies. We're not going to deal with them, but I'm going to take that risk. We also didn't hear about that, but we did hear about some people who were just hostile to everybody, so I'm going to go with that. Anyway, I'm also bringing Gawain because he's a pretty boy. And he's good at traveling, so he can charm people <laughs> of all genders. <laughs> I like that your your decisions for bringing like one of the most famous knights of the Round Table have nothing to do with him actually fighting. Oh, he's there for that too, but he's mainly there as my bard to be pretty. Okay, <laughs> like my leopard woman is here for the battle and the fighting. Gawain's here to be pretty. 
Because, like, he doesn't act, like, he does do some fighting, but he does more to, like, charm and he gets through all of these situations. He might come out of it humiliated, but I'm not worried about him and his ego. Mm-hmm. I'm worried about getting this dignitary through this, through this area safely. So, he's there to be pretty. And then I picked Malchus because he's going to tie the party together. And he doesn't seem to be shaken by being chucked through time, stood before emperors, and dealing with hostile folks in foreign areas and changes of currency and things like that. Because, you know, he's bread, he's bread boy. Also, he's the one who's going to, like, take care of getting the food for everybody. He's used to that. He knows that. That's his routine. So, here we go. The leopard woman, Gawain, and Malchus set out on their journey with the leopard woman. I want to give her, like, a, a color, a color Leo. Because right. she's the leopard woman. So, Leo serving as their guide to the unfamiliar territory because she's a local. I didn't walk my way through the different areas, unfortunately. But anyway. Yeah, that would take forever, though. That's why I didn't do it. Yeah. So, they continue through the land, and Leo knows her way around. Largely, they see all the beautiful, wondrous gardens, and the fruits that are there, and the gems that, like, bust open into, like, sapphires and stuff. And because Leo knows her way around, she's like, please don't touch the chickens. They're going to explode. Anyway, as they encounter, as they continue on their journey, they encounter various challenges and obstacles. But Gawain's charm and diplomatic skills and just being a himbo smooth over potential conflicts. Malchus acts as the glue that holds everyone together, keeps them focused on their mission and providing support where needed, whether that's through resources, prayer, healing, that sort of thing. And they learn more about the history and uh, the culture of the region, and they get the dignitary to where they need to go very safely. Unfortunately, mine was mine was pretty much more of an overview there, but I think it's a good team. I agree. Yeah. Taking a local is a good idea. I would have done the same, but the person I picked from the Wonders of the East was the <laughs> Denestra. The Denestra is just gonna kill you in the first. Yeah, not place. a not a diplomatic choice. Mm 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 mm. No, you know. I figured a leopard woman could hold her own. Yeah. All right. Next question. Next question. This is from AC Esquire. What fashion from the medieval period should make a comeback in 2023? This one was so easy for me. Cod pieces. (laughs) Do you want to elaborate on that? I want cod pieces to come back. (laughs) They are flamboyant. They can be large or small. They're efficient and easy. You just pop that sucker off when you have to pee. Like, I just think that we should bring that back. And there's so much, like, posing around, like, men's sexuality. I feel like, you know, why not? Just, just why not? Like, the poofy leggings plus a cod piece. I do think that would be, like, a lot more honest. Like, I feel like a lot yeah. of men just, like, try to, like you say, there's a lot of posing. And I feel like you could just get to the point of it if you just said, like, okay, if you, you can wear a, a giant cod piece if you want. Like, yeah. that's what you're doing metaphorically anyway. Yeah, you might as well just do it. And I'm not even talking about, like, big energy or big size. Like, I'm not talking about your actual size. Like, it, it's more like the metaphorical, like, do you like do you have the balls to wear a cod piece? That's what I want to know. That's what I want to know. You can bling that sucker out. Like, I think that this should come back as like a thing for particularly the queer drag community. I can see drag kings in cod pieces. I think that makes sense. Right? Right? I just think that, yeah, cod pieces. They're super cool, whether it's men or women. There's been a couple really cool 
female cod pieces that I've seen that are like on chains that go around and just like sit in front. Very pretty gold filigree with a skirt. 10 out of 10. Love it. <laughs> anyway, if you're gonna have a dick measuring contest, just wear a cod piece is my point. Plus, I personally think they're really cool. I just, I like how poofy everything is with those kind of pants. Also, I think we should bring back leggings for men. Leggings yeah. for men. They're really comfy. They're nice. Like, guys wear them in the gym now, usually with, like, baggy shorts over them. But, like, whenever I talk to my guy friends who lift, they're like, I freaking love leggings and I'm really jealous that you girls can wear leggings all the time whenever you want and I can't. And I'm like, first of all, you can. You just need a cod piece to go with it so you're not embarrassed. Second of all, they are really comfy and you should just you should just wear them. So I yeah. was thinking those two went together really well. They they do. So yeah, for me, cod pieces and leggings. So all right, my answer is not gonna stand up to that. That was <laughs> that was a much, much more entertaining answer than mine. So I had two competing thoughts when uh, I saw this question. My first thought was those hoods that come down to like your elbow that's like a separate garment. I would wear those. Yes. And my second thought was gowns as a unisex clothing choice. Yes. And then I realized there's already something that combines those. And so what we really need to do is bring back the social norm where everyone in academia wears their doctoral regalia, like, just every day. All the time. I love it. Wouldn't you feel fancy? Those things do come with hoods. But the hoods are- only like symbolic and decorative now no one actually wears them up but i think we should bring it back i like it i like it or like cloaks yeah i love a good cloak i like that plus you just get to feel like a wizard who doesn't want to feel like a wizard i know and also if they were everyday wear people would actually make nice ones instead of ones that are like clearly just garbage fabric yeah come on you guys all right i want those to be real clothing and i want to wear them every time i teach One of the guys in my program at Trinity tried so hard to find good wool for a cloak. He wanted a cloak so bad. He's like, I will source the wool myself and hire somebody to make me a cloak because he couldn't find a good one. That's fair. Yeah. If you are looking for cool kit like that, you should check out Fell and Fair. Super cool. They do LARP events, but they also create really, really nice kit. So check that out. Okay, next quest. All right, yes, I'm reading this one, so... uh, Oh, okay, we're down to these. This one is from Ethelred Undead, who submitted two in, like, image format, and we're we're doing them both. So, the first one is ill-speaking. We should put this image on the Discord, because it made them look like side quests... They're so fun. They are in the tournament Discord. You should absolutely check them out. They, they look like the sort of like quest reminder or something you'd have in your like notebook or whatever in a video game. Yep. Also, I he, she, they, I don't know. But anyway, it says, The rivalry between the court poets has been getting out of hand. Lady Cassette has asked me to mediate before things get worse. Okay. So I only picked two people for this one. I think they're effective. The first is Fergus McRoy. Because he's a master negotiator. This guy was the peace. He kept the peace between Cucullin and Maeve. That's the Ulsterman and the Connachtman in the Twain. And yeah, he he kept the peace long enough so that there was only like a one-on-one combat with Cucullin. And he was friends with people on both sides. So some measly poets should be no problem. The other person I picked was the nail puller. Because he likes hard workers and he can shame the poets for their bickering 
and because he can also be used to coerce them back into their jobs, if need be. So, Fergus McRoy and the nail puller are called upon by Lady Cassette. They set out to meet with the poets to try and understand the root of the conflict. The root of the cause, of course, is petty, as they are poets. They meet with the poets, who are bickering and accusing each other of stealing the best lines for their poems. Fergus, being a master negotiator, tries to calm the poets down and encourages them to work together to find a solution to their dispute, maybe to create a poem together. The nail puller also provides support and encouragement, reminding them of the importance of their work to the court. This does very little to help. The nail puller, seeing that the poets are not cooperating, threatens to pull out their tongues if they do not return to their jobs and focus on creating the best poem for Lady Cosette. They are, after all, employed by her. With the threat of the nail puller looming over them, the poets reluctantly agree to return to their jobs and focus on creating one singular poem for the Lady Cassette. These two monitor the situation, making sure that the poets stay on track and do not fall back into their bickering ways. Eventually, the poets complete the poem and present it to the Lady Cassette, who is pleased with the efforts. The quest is complete, and the two are hailed as heroes for bringing peace to the court. All right, very good. I like the use of the nail puller. You know, he likes hard work. He's not going to take slack from anybody. <laughs> but also, he'll yank their tongues out. I'm not sure what a nail puller looks like. Did you, like, look one up and think that looks like you could pull a tongue out with it? I sort of either visualized it as, like, I sort of, sort of like tongs. Oh, okay. And then yank. Because I, I figured medieval nails were sort of like railroad spikes, you know? Yeah, it makes sense. Yeah, that's what I went with. All right. That makes way more sense. I was just thinking of, like, the back end of a hammer, but, like, I'm sure that's not actually what it is. I didn't think that that's what it would be, but, you know, you could also whack somebody real hard with it, so yeah. point still stands. Yeah. All right. So here's mine. This one is tough because it requires some social knowledge, which I don't have. I'm going to guess <laughs> the rivalry is related to the quality of their poetry, but I'm not sure in what way it's escalating or what's motivating it. So we'll have to go in with intent to gather information, and we should have a backup plan. Luckily, I have the perfect person for this quest. Thethelm is not only a prophetess, but a poet herself. She should be this able to do true. planning and intelligence gathering very effectively, and is likely to understand the issues at play on a deeper level. She will be supported by Iglaes, whose knowledge of courtly behavior, and thus ability to move effectively within the social environment of a royal court, will effectively supplement Thethelm's work. I used the word effectively twice in that sentence. I should have edited more. <laughs> They will also be accompanied by Valerius Maximus, rhetorician and historian, who demonstrated in the Gesta Romanorum that he is able to make presumably accurate deductions from limited information, much like Sherlock or Holmeson did in Tia del Saga. If anyone's trying to remember that, his story in the Gesta Romanorum was about this very strange inscription that he was able to divine the meaning of. Oh yeah, that's right. Yep, yep, yep. So first, Thethelm will attempt to use her prophetic abilities to divine the solution to the problem. Failing that, though, she and Valerius can speak to the feuding poets as fellow wordsmiths to try and work out the underlying problems, while Iglaes does some info-gathering among the rest of the court. If a solution can be found, the party can attempt to guide the poets to a peaceful de-escalation of their rivalry. Through Fethelm's otherworldly presence, Iglesias' aristocratic charisma, and Valerius's expert rhetoric, they should be quite good at executing a diplomatic solution. However, if that approach fails, we go to the backup plan, which is to crush the feuding poet's egos. 
If they're having a public, high-profile rivalry, they're clearly too full of themselves, so we should take them down a bit. Bethel can compose poetry superior to theirs, Iglace can undermine their social standing through courtly machinations, and Valerius can use his rhetorical skills as support for both of them. Hopefully they'll either tone it down and focus on producing better poetry, or just leave the court in shame. As an absolute last resort, we will have Fethelm fake a prophecy and tell them that all of this is because she foresaw that they would both come to ruin if they didn't kiss and make up. <laughs> Very nice. I like it. I like it. Thank you. How many how many questers does it take to, to fix a poem? I mean, I was tempted to just, like, pick one of the heavy hitters and say, like, he kills them. They're not arguing anymore. <laughs> But I, I, felt no, like, I felt like no. it wasn't in the spirit of the thing. That's fair. That's fa- See, I, I leaned into that a little bit. <laughs> yeah. Oh, boy. Okay. Shall I do one of our other questions? Yes, please. Here we go. If you learned that you were a descendant of one of the characters that has been mentioned in the podcast, which would be the coolest to you? So? Wait, who would, who, would, who said this one? Altchester again. He sent us a bunch of questions. She? Yes. They? I don't. We gotta get start getting people's pronouns. Maybe maybe we'll have them put put it in their name. Put your pronouns after your name if you want. Anyway. All right. So, and I'm sure that anyone could have predicted this. I would think the coolest option is Gunhild, mother of kings, witch queen of Norway, <laughs> or for similar reasons, Morgana Le Fay. I think they're both very cool. Very nice. Honorable mention to. Two characters who we have not done an episode about yet, but both of which are forthcoming and in the works. Watt Tyler or Harroward the Wake? Ooh, yes. Both very interesting. Nice. I had a hard time with this one. Namely because, I don't know, like, I don't know why I had a, I had a hard time with this one. I just want to be a descendant of, like, a witch I don't particularly feel like it would be that interesting to be a descendant of someone important, but just like a witch who took care of her community, I think would be really cool. But if I had to pick somebody, it would probably either be Dindrain or Yglaise, but probably Dindrain because she doesn't take sh** from anybody, especially her brother. And I really admire her courage in going into the the cemetery by herself, like with all the demons and stuff to, mm. to protect her family. So she would be really cool. But otherwise, I think it would just be fun to be a descendant of just a common, a common woman, a witch, a, an herbalist. But not either of the noble witches that, uh, that I named. I mean, not really. I don't like just a regular person. I just like the idea of, of being descended from a, like a regular person. Well, I have good news. We were probably all descended <laughs> from lots of regular <laughs> That's true. That's true. Or like, um, not not the mean witch from the Gesta Romanorum, not the one with like the crying dog, because that was sad. But like one one of the so-called witches from one of the, the folk tales that we've read through, I think that would be cool. That's a good answer. I wanna I wanna haunt strange men. <laughs> <laughs> you want to what? <laughs> You know, like haunt haunt strange men. Like it would be cool if my if my if my ancestor like wigged out guys, and then they were like, "She's a witch." And it's like she's really not. She's just chilling. She just rejected you, bro. Okay, I thought you said haunt strange men, and I was like, "That that, that can't be right. That can't be." The yeah, no, words. haunt strange men. Yes. <laughs> okay, <laughs> that is correct. <laughs> I want them to be unnerved. 
<laughs> That's entirely fair. <laughs> okay, okay. Anyway, is this, this one's our last one, right? Yeah. All right. Okay. The king is dead, mauled by his dragon black tongue. I have been tasked by the royal court to track and slay the beast. Now, the prince has offered me, in secret, a sizable sum of gold if Black Tongue is captured and delivered to the prince in secret. So this is the quest. What will you do? Alright. So, dragon slaying. Classic. Possibly dragon capturing. Slightly less classic, but also cool. The temptation is obviously to just pull out our heaviest hitters and hope for the best, but I do actually have people with specific relevant skills. Ooh, okay. I'm ready. King Goldenflower from the Tong Records is the obvious first choice here. He has experience with dragons. He has some yoked to his chariot, you may remember, and is possibly part dragon himself. That's right. He'll definitely be able to handle himself, and it seems implied in the short description of him and his people that he brings both power and strategy to the table in addition to this important knowledge base. It also says that he's harnessed the power of invisibility through his dragon chariot, which has all kinds of tactical applications. I love that dragon chariot. Right. He's going to be in charge of this expedition and provide transport via chariot. Sigurth from the Lay of Fafnir is famously a dragon slayer, so he has to come along. He is also going to help expand our knowledge base on dragons, since Fafnir was a different sort of dragon, probably, to the ones King Goldenflower deals with. I assume that, you know, even if, even setting aside the issue of Eastern and Western dragons, right? if we imagine that there are real dragons, I assume the ones in Northern Europe and the ones in China would be different. That makes sense. At least, like, in terms of what people know about them, if not actually, like, divergent species or something. Anyway. Yes. That's a fair assumption. So, experience with different types of dragon means we can hedge against making bad assumptions can also ask this council for details, since the dragon is clearly known to them. Given that it is described as the king's dragon, I assume there's lots of information about it available. The quest specifically says the dragon must be tracked before it is slain, so we'll be bringing along the supernaturally good dog, Albi. Yay! I'm so glad he gets to come. <laughs> He's described as a hound, so I'm going to assume he has some tracking capabilities, which is a stretch, etymologically. Because until recently, Hound was just a synonym for dog. But at the very least, he's a talented dog, so it seems likely he'd be good at this. We'll, we'll give him the benefit of the doubt. So we'll spend a significant amount of time preparing and consulting with the council in order to establish as much as possible about Black Tongue's weaknesses, habits, known haunts, etc. Goldenflower can lay out a strategy, then we can get to tracking the dragon's movements with the help of Albi, and traveling with Goldenflower's swift chariot. Finally, when we find him, Sigurth and Goldenflower can engage with him. Albi stays back where it's safe. Goldenflower, being a nobleman of dragon blood who has experience with taming dragons, can take a stab at a diplomatic resolution. It might be possible to convince him to just come back with us to the prince and call it done. It's possible we'll be able to make some kind of a deal, which would be ideal for everyone involved. Yes. Failing that, though, Sigurth can bring his dragon-slaying experience to bear, and Goldenflower can employ his dragon chariot and ability to turn invisible to great tactical effect. Hopefully, we will be able to successfully either subdue or capture him. It's going to depend on how the dice fall, which option we take. Er, did I say subdue or capture? I meant subdue or slay. Very nice. That's a, that's a strong approach. Thank you. I took a... A similar but different approach. I decided 
because I really like dragons, that I'm not going to deal with the council at all. I'm only dealing with the prince. We are bringing this dragon home. This is his home. So I picked Gopola the dragon because, duh, Mm -hmm. he's a dragon and he can communicate uh, with Black Tongue. And it's like, it's the clearest, easiest form of communication. You know, hey, we've got a dragon over here. You're a dragon. You know, easy peasy. I'm also bringing Melio of Logris because he's a brave and noble knight, willing to do the right thing, even in the face of evil, like Arthur being a shitty king and his dad being a horrible shitty abuser. That's Melio's dad. He was the, the vengeful guy who like killed his wife. Oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I was yeah. Tra- I was like, I knew I know who Melio's dad is, but yes, you're right. That yes. is him. Yeah, he's the, the shitty guy. And like, yeah, he's a brave and noble knight. He's good. He won't kill the dragon. Unless he absolutely has to. Like, at the end of the day, if we have to, we have to. We have a dragon on our side, after all, and we have a brave knight. But he's lawful good. He's not going to do it if he has to. And then finally, I'm bringing Michael the Swindler. And this seems like a weird choice until you remember that we still do have to deal with the council. Michael the Swindler will swindle the council into thinking (laughs) the dragon is dead. Very good. (laughs) Because I want to make sure the black tongue's going to be safe. So, how are we doing this? Gopal of the Dragon, Melio, and Michael set out on their quest to find Blacktum. Melio shares the details of the mission with the group, including the prince's offer. I figure he's the one dealing with the council in the first place, you know, presenting this like, I'm an awful knight! You know, that whole shtick. They agree that the best path is to bring Blacktum home. And Gopala the dragon uses his senses and connections as a dragon to help him track down Blacktum. And as they search for the beast, they encounter other various challenges, which Melio can completely overcome, and also Gopala, because he is, in fact, a dragon. And when they find Black Tongue, he is, of course, reluctant to return, because, you know, he, you know, he killed the king, and the council's not too happy about this. But I think that he explains that the king was a very bad man. And a bad ruler, and he probably deserved death. Because if we know anything from all the stories that we've learned, most of these kings have not been too great. Mm-hmm. So, I'm figuring this is probably where this story is going. Now, Melio understands this, of course. And he and Gopala and Michael convince Black Tongue to return with them. Now, while they are sneaking Black Tongue back into the castle, back home, wherever that is for him, Michael the Swindler uses his skills to deceive the royal council and make it appear as though Black Tongue has been slain. He presents a very rotten cow tongue as proof that it's Black Tongue's Black Tongue. The prince is pleased with their efforts and pays them the promised sum of gold. The quest is complete and the group is hailed as heroes. And Black Tongue gets to live the rest of his days as the prince, uh, as the as the dragon, and we get money from the prince, but we also get money from, you know, the council for killing the dragon. So, best of both worlds. Very good. That's how I would approach that one. <laughs> right. I, I like it, 100%. Yeah, it's a good one, I thought. Because, like, I don't want to kill the dragon, but you guys knew that. You guys knew I would never kill the dragon. All right, anyway, next questions. We only have a couple. That was the end of our quests, by the way. Yes, that's all six of them. That's we all six. We do still have one, two, three questions left over, so yeah. we'll go ahead and do those. All right, so this next question is, what is your favorite five-minute meal? Is also all Chester. Ah, yes. Okay, fantastic. What's your five, your favorite five-minute meal? Well, since I don't like spending money on food or spending time on preparing food, most of my meals are five-minute meals, and most of them are ramen. Very nice. Easy. So, I, by default, ramen. You can mix some, like, uh, some of those veggie protein crumbles in and some sriracha. 
There you go. I like that. Actually, you know what? Let me revise that. The best five-minute meal is those boxes of frozen vegan sausages that Morningstar Farms makes. Those are so good. I love them. They're so... they're Okay, they are $8 for a baggie. I know. I don't buy them much, but they're very good. They're so expensive, but they're so good. It's a problem. Yes. I like to put soy sauce and sriracha on them. It's delicious, but I can't afford mm. to do it very often. They're also very good with Chick-fil-A sauce. Like, if I ever have any extra leftover Chick-fil-A sauce, because I used to live in Texas, and people would eat Chick-fil-A, I would take it. Oh. I've never actually been to Chick-fil-A. We used to, I used to have Chick-fil-A as a kid. I really like their nuggets, but I don't really go for, like, fast food very much anymore. Anyway, my favorite five-minute meal, because I, okay, I really, I really love the process of cooking, um, like, unlike Mac, I guess. Don't let me take that the wrong, like, yeah, is that no, correct? No, you don't, I, you don't I, really I understand cook. That, that I'm the weird one here. <laughs> I, well, everyone has their own thing, but I really enjoy the process of cooking. So I like to I like to make full meals and things. So this one was a little bit tricky for me, but it turned out to be very easy because then I remembered that I'm a weightlifter. My favorite five minute meal is yogurt and granola. It's a great pre or post workout snack. I just grab a little tub of, of yogurt if I have it or just like spoon it into a cup or whatever. And I have cookie butter protein powder. It's on Amazon. It's fantastic. I get the brownie flavor and I put that into different flavors of yogurt. So I, I can do like a chocolate lemon or like a, a cherry chocolate tart sort of vibe. Or because I don't like the taste of plain Greek yogurt, but it's very, very full of protein. So it's fantastic for like weightlifters, but I can't stand it by itself. So I usually mix that up. And then if I have it on hand, I will put granola on top. And then it's like a little healthy chocolate fruit tart. That sounds elaborate, but also pretty good. Yeah, it's really quick, and it's nice. It's easy. All right, shall we do our next one? Another question from Lady Antiope. We know y'all love Saga Thing, but any other podcasts you've been binge listening or regularly tune into? It's not a podcast. I'm kind of bad about listening to, to podcasts, actually. But I really enjoy listening to Crispy's Tavern on YouTube. He's got a an actual play. He's got great D&D advice. And he does like RPG horror stories, which I really like listening to. So like if I'm cooking or something in the morning, I'll just I'll turn that on and listen to it because it's just fun. So his stuff is really cool. For as for like actual podcasts, I like listening to the Jocko podcast, which is he's an ex- seal and he does like leadership training and stuff now so i like i like listening to some of that stuff for both workout motivation and like stuff there but also for leadership lessons and stories from interesting either you know military folks that he's had on or yeah just things things of that nature because for some reason i'm i get really really interested in special forces memoirs and military stories. And I don't know whether that's because like my family has been in the military or because it's just these people are really f***ing good at their jobs and it's amazing to listen to. And for all of like, don't get me wrong here. We are spending so much on the military as a country and I have issues with all of that. And these individual service members do their jobs very, very well. And 
I believe, in my opinion, this is my opinion, the folks that Jocko has on have integrity and their stories are just really interesting to listen to. So I enjoy listening to those. I do listen to podcasts more regularly. Pretty much any time I'm doing something that doesn't involve reading or writing, I have either a podcast or an audiobook playing in the background. So I've, yes. I've got a bit of a list. Let's see, some of my favorites. I've mentioned before, in addition to Saga Thing, uh, Totalis Rankium, which mm-hmm. is a very entertaining like look at Roman history, where they, they rank the various Roman emperors in order. It's very funny. Uh, they also do one for American presidents, which is extra entertaining because they are, in fact, not American. They're British, so they have their own perspective. Oh my gosh. <laughs> that sounds hysterical. I didn't even know that existed. Yeah, I, I found them through Saga Thing, actually. That's hilarious. Also, I would list uh, the partial historians who also do Roman history, but they're doing the Roman Republic rather than the Roman Empire. And they're, they also, like, have their PhDs in it. So it's, it's, it's still entertaining, but they, it's much more, like, serious academia than, like, just funny jokes times. Lighthearted. Yeah. I mean, it's still very funny. Like, they still make jokes, but they're also real If you want that in-depth. Yeah, yeah. I've also mentioned What the Folklore Before, which is actually one of, was one of my inspirations for this podcast. It was mostly inspired by Saga Thing, but also by What the Folklore where the host reads a fairy tale to her two co-hosts and they react to it as it goes. That's, yeah, it's fun. That's just so much fun. Also listen to a few that are unrelated to our topic at hand, but they're good, so I'm going to mention them. One of my favorite podcasts, and the one I spend the most time listening to because they put out three episodes a week. Whoa! I know, it's intense. That's amazing! Is called Knowledge Fight, which is a podcast that kind of dissects and mocks uh, right-wing propaganda. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Primarily focused on InfoWars. That's where the name comes from. InfoWars Knowledge Fight. Oh my gosh. Oh gosh. Oh boy. It's, It's very entertaining and also educational. And I also listen to Behind the Bastards, which is a... Uh, a history podcast about various historical villains. Ooh. Mostly focused on the 20th century, occasionally dipping back into the 19th century or forward into the present day, but it's, it's mostly like pretty modern history because I think that's just what the host has the ability to research. Like, that's what he can find sources on. It's also a lot harder to understand the nature and character of historical quote unquote villains. Like, Julius Caesar did a ton of damage to you know the the gauls and the germania and you know so on the one hand is he a massive villain yeah for sure also to the roman people he's a hero so it's a lot fuzzier the further in history you go that's an interesting example you picked because i believe that is the only pre-modern person he's ever covered that's interesting he he did he did an episode well he did a series of episodes about Basically, why the Roman Republic fell apart, and that was that was <laughs> yeah, a I big can part imagine. Yeah, and I also listened to a more recent podcast on the same network that seems to have been like deliberately planned as a counterpart to Behind the Bastards. Ooh. It is called Cool People Who Did Cool Stuff, and it is a look at historical heroes. That's fun. It's especially fun, in my opinion, at least. 
because the host is a trans anarchist and they have their own views on what mean on what makes a hero. So it's actually mostly about rebels and revolutionaries, which I think is much better than the standard That's like, very cool. canon of historical good guys we usually get. George Washington. Yeah, exactly. He's a hero. <laughs> I'm, I'm pretty sure if George Washington were to show up on this podcast, he would be the bad guy. <laughs> one more thing. Uh, that last podcast I just mentioned, uh, the host is the one who wrote the book I mentioned earlier, uh, Margaret Kiljoy. You should look it up. It's good. Oh, nice. Nice. All right. Final question. From Yoav Luft. Yes. What are your opinions about RPGs other than D&D? I have actually played many RPGs other than D&D. I know that like the current thing is that... A lot of people like just play D&D, but that didn't used to be the case. At least that wasn't ever in the gaming circles I ran in back in the day. Yeah, depends on who you run with. I always refer to things in terms of D&D because I got the third edition rule books when I was like 11 and I kind of internalized them. And so, but when I was in, in undergrad, I did get to play a lot of other systems, uh, all the classics like Shadowrun and Mutants and Masterminds. All the World of Darkness things. And also a couple, like, media tie-ins. Like, we did a, we did the Star Wars RPG. We did the Buffy the Vampire RPG. We did the Firefly RPG. That's so cool. I don't know what the indie RPG scene was like at the time. Because the only person in our social circle who was, like, keeping up with game design stuff preferred to design his own games. So a number of the campaigns I played in an undergrad were, like, just playtests of game systems that, as far as I know, had not been given a name yet. Wow. Oh, that's fun. OG stuff. Lots of fun. I encourage, like, my general opinion on RPGs other than D&D is you should play them. Like, all of them. Like, go get mm -hmm. some. Go, go check them out. Go play them. I'm not really versed in game design, so I don't have a lot of, like, nitty-gritty opinions on which RPGs are better than each other, because they all are best for the setting that they're designed for, in my opinion. Right, right. That, well, that's the tricky thing about comparing them all. One opinion I do have, which may be slightly controversial, is that the best RPGs are the ones that have really, like, intensely customizable, intricate character creation. That's fun. That's fun. One of the ones I think does this best is the hero system. And, like, I know that there are a lot of other RPGs where you can make whatever you can theoretically make whatever character you want like you could write down on an index card my character is an animated idol of a forgotten god of nightmares who is shaped like a frog but <laughs> because he has no worshippers his only power is to give people mildly unpleasant hallucinations and also he can't move if anyone is looking at him and you can just hand that to your GM in some of these systems and go like that's me figure out how to make it work mm -hmm. and that's fine Yep. but in the hero system you can make that character and then hand the sheet to your GM and, say, and give him that whole spiel and say, and here's the numbers on how that works. That's awesome. As you may have picked up, Fawn, that was not a random example. That was the character I played in the last hero campaign I was in. That is fantastic. I love it. If I'm ever in another one, I plan to do a character based on the lyrics of Come Together by the Beatles. God bless. That's amazing. Oh boy. Well, I, I'm afraid that my answer is going to be a little lackluster. I, like I said, I have actually, I, I was only introduced to TTRPGs in college, so I'm way behind. And I really haven't played in that many other systems. If I have, it's been mainly D&D &D that's been homebrewed, Pathfinder that's been homebrewed. 
I did review and play a little bit of Vison by Free League, which I would highly, highly recommend. Is Vison how you say that? I think so. It's not Vason. I thought it might be Vasson. I th- I think it's Vison. Okay. Because it's it's got an A-E ligature one of the in Nordic. it, people. <laughs> That's why we're struggling on this. Yeah. Also, I think it's a Scandinavian word. It is. Swedish. Yeah. Yeah. So I have a very hard time with those letters because Latin says that you pronounce it one way and then like classical Latin versus ecclesiastical Latin versus old English versus modern English. Like I just, I can't do those letters. Anyway, Vison, Vison however you say it very very fun it's essentially nordic turn of the century turn of the 20th century scandinavia and you play as like an investigator a writer a priest of you know whatever and you like it's sort of monster hunt it's very monster of the week in terms of you go out on little adventures and then go back to base and go out on little adventures and go back to base which is a castle which you can also level up so cool but you don't really monster hunt it's more like the witcher 3 or the witcher books where you negotiate an ethical and moral dilemma in a small town in a dungeon in whatever like whatever the situation is you kind of have to determine, like, what to do about the vison, the, you know, creature of folklore in that area. So maybe it's a really unhappy hobgoblin who's, you know, making sheep sick and turning the milk sour and blah, 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 because there's a new priest in town who's been desecrating his little stream or something. And then you have to determine what to do about it. Like, do you stop the priest? Do you stop the hobgoblin? Do you come to a a negotiation? Like, what do you do about that? Which I really like. It's one of my favorite ways to play because it's not as combat oriented and it's very like negotiation and you have to understand the community that you're in and becoming a part of in order to figure out a good solution. And I really like that style of play. So, and also the setting is just too damn cool. And they did one for Britain and Ireland as well. So I have not played that many other RPGs. I really want to, but of the ones that I have played, like D&D is fun. It's cool. I like homebrewing it better. But as far as settings go, I really like Vison. It's very cool. That's my two cents. (laughs) All right. All right. Anything else to add? I wish there were more opportunities for playing non-D&D games. I don't know many people who want to run games other than D&D. Yeah. I've always wanted to play Traveler. That seems good. Ooh, that could be interesting. One of our goals, actually, for 2023, I'll bring this up now, is to do a couple of one-shots for different systems and settings. So if you are interested in that, please, please let us know. Give us suggestions on what to play. We do want to lean into stuff that has a medieval bent. But it doesn't necessarily have to. If it grabs our fancy, we'll do it. But yeah, so that's one of our things that we'd like to do this year. We've got one or two like written down already, right? Yes, Wolves of God is one that's of them. It's sort of a uh, yep, old English styled RPG, which will be fun to explore. And yeah, so thank you everyone so much for joining us on our first episode of 2023. 
We're very excited for what the year has. And don't forget, the best way to get involved and hear from us directly is through our Discord and our Patreon. So if you are interested in that, you can find the links in our show notes below. And yeah, we do have some cool new Patreon things, especially if you are interested in what we're doing with all these D&D and TTRPG ideas that we are generating and collecting. Uh, We are actually starting to do stuff with that and building that up. So do check our Patreon if you're interested in that. We also have our other socials. And yeah, reach out, talk to us. We love you guys. Thank you for sticking with us and have a wonderful and happy new year. Happy New Year! Whee! Probably slightly Whee! late. I'm glad oh, you survived well. the zombie apocalypse that happened at the end of 2022. Uh, rip. <laughs> <laughs> Alright, there we go. Thank you for listening to the Maniculum Podcast. Please consider leaving a rating and review on iTunes to help support us. If you're interested in exclusive merch and continuous exclusive content, consider becoming a patron on Patreon. To see our sources and our notes, check out our blog on themaniculumpodcast.com. And hey, come get involved in our community. We have a Discord group that you can join, and you can find links to our server on our Facebook group, The Maniculum Podcast, our Twitter, at Maniculum, and our Instagram, at Podcast. Original music by Walker. Check out their project, Sugar Glass, on Spotify. So we're recruiting the one rogue I have in my cult, uh, court. Your cult? My cult. Is this a cult now? <laughs> oh, sh**. They're worshipping you? In my you court. didn't say anything about that. <laughs> Let me try that sentence again. <laughs>